Well, there you go. That wasn't bad for a first time through. There's plenty of words to fit in, isn't there? Uh, but a great tune, and I think lovely, lovely words to that particular. Um, well, this evening we're coming to our studies in the tabernacle, and we're going to ask the question this evening, why study the tabernacle? Why would you and I want to spend a number of weeks actually studying an ancient tent? And that's the question we're going to ask this evening. And we're going to turn in our Bibles to the book of Exodus, please. And the chapter 25, and we're going to read from the verse 1 to 9. Exodus 25, I want you in your mind to travel back with me 3,000 years. And imagine that you're walking through the wilderness and across there in what's modern day Saudi Arabia. And you come across a massive camp. After a few inquiries, you realize that these people say that they're the Israelites and that they're God's people. And as you look at the camp, there's this strange looking tent pitched there and there seems to be a lot of activity happening at it. And you couldn't miss this tent because it sticks out. It's prominent. And there's an outer courtyard built around it. And there's and with a closer look, there's an altar and then there's what looks like a basin, that's called the labor, where people can wash their hands and their feet. And then there's this large tent construction found in the courtyard. Now, we who know our Bibles well will know I'm describing what is called the tabernacle. And when you come along and look at the detail of this tabernacle, well, according to a rough estimate and a very quick internet search, this tent or tabernacle would have cost in modern day 42 million pounds. 42 million pounds. That's a massive amount of money. A very expensive tent, the tabernacle. But why study it? What benefit will it have to our Christian walk today? That's the question we're going to try and answer tonight. Why study the tabernacle? Essentially what I'm trying to get you to do is convince you to come back over the next few Wednesday evenings. So we'll read Exodus chapter 25 and we'll read the first nine verses, please. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they may bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly, with his heart ye shall take my offering. And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass, and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen, and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red, and badger skins and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary or a tabernacle, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word to each of your hearts. I want to ask you a question this evening. And I want you to think about it and answer it for yourself in your own heart, as we set out in these new studies in the tabernacle. And the question I want you to ask is this. What is the purpose of the Lord redeeming us? What is the purpose of redemption? Why did the Lord save you? 
Why did the Lord save you? Keeping those questions in your mind and the answers that you might have given, I want to consider how the Israelites might have answered these questions in Old Testament times. What is the purpose? What was the purpose of their redemption? Like, I mean, why did God save them from slavery? They've been stuck in slavery in Egypt for endless years. And God took these people out of the slavery in Egypt into the wilderness. And then the very and very early on they began the construction of this tabernacle. Did God really bring these people into the wilderness? And one of the first things he gets them to do is construct a tent. What was God's purpose in bringing these people out of Egypt? Well, you might say, well, I know, isn't it obvious, Peter? If you read your Bible, well, it's clear that these people were on their way to the land flowing with milk and honey. After all, that's what the Lord promised them. This land that the Lord had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, that's basic Bible knowledge. And for many a Christian today, that's all it's about to A ticket to the land of milk and honey. And that's where it stops. I'm saved from my sin. And I'm saved from hell. And God has conveniently done this for me. And that's all I need him for. For those of us who are saved today, that's right. We have been saved from heaven. And we are heaven bound, praise God. But that misses the point in us, the question we have asked. Why have we been redeemed? That's not what the Bible teaches the reasons that we have been redeemed for. Well, yes, the Israelites were on their way to the land flowing with milk and honey. And while, yes, for many of us who listen, we're saved and we know we're heaven bound, that's not the major part in God redeeming you. Okay then, what is the main point in God redeeming you, we need to ask? Well, let's explore it. Do you remember what happened when Moses went up the Mount Sinai? He was up there for so long that these people who had been saved from slavery corrupted themselves and let themselves go in and do many immoral things and sinful things and they went wild and they, they molded this golden calf. And they forgot the purpose. They forgot why they had been redeemed and who had redeemed them. You know the story well. God became so angry. And he was just going to wipe them out. Completely destroy them. And that would be it. And Moses pleaded with God. And then the Lord replied to Moses. Okay I won't wipe them out. But you listen to me Moses. My presence isn't coming with you. You lead the people on. They don't need me. All they're interested in is this land flowing with milk and honey. And then Moses shows that he understands the point in God redeeming us. That God will be with us always. That's that because Moses pleads with God and he says, Lord, if you're not coming with us, carry us not up from hence. If we have all these material things, Lord, but we don't have you. Lord, if we lo we'll lose the reason for living if we don't have you. But if we have you and your presence always with us, says Moses, that's the reason for living. Let me ask you a question this evening. This evening. If the Lord withdrew his presence from this local church fellowship, would you know? Would you? Would you sense it if his blessing or, or if he was withholding his blessing? Would you sense that? Let me ask a second question. Would it worry you 
If there was no sense of God's power, would it worry it? If God doesn't speak, or, or, or if God weren't to speak to your heart this evening, would you just walk out the door later, later and go, oh well. Sure, it's just the same as always. I come in, I hear something, and I forget about it by the time I'm at home making my cup of tea. Would that concern you? Or has it got to the stage that you don't even notice anymore? Derek Bingham, who used to preach down in Belfast, says this. The jewel in the evangelistic church's crown is the presence of God among his people. Did you get that? The jewel in the evangelistic church's crown is the presence of God amongst his people. When we gather together in this church, here in this building, we need to know that God is here. And when we know that God is here, the question that we need to ask is, do we exult that God is here? Do we joy in the fact that God is here? Does it cause our hearts to beat an extra beat? Does it give us a few extra inches in our steps? Moses says, no, Lord, you must be here. You must be with us. Because we don't go to the land flowing with milk and honey if you're not there. And we're not leaving this place until we grasp that, says Moses. Unless you're with us, we're not going anywhere. So God says to Moses, if I'm coming with you, I want to dwell with you. And I want to tabernacle with you. And I want to live with you. I want to be amongst you. So I want you to build me a dwelling place. So that wherever you go, you'll bring this dwelling place. And I'll dwell amongst you. And I will live in your midst. Now this Jewish tabernacle is one of the first examples in scripture. That teaches us and shows us that God wants to dwell with his people. It's an illustration of his great desire to come near to people and for people to come near to him. He loves you and he wants to dwell with you and he wants to live with you. Now, of course, the tabernacle no longer exists. So where does God dwell today? Well, let's take a quick panoramic view of the history to find out where we've got to and where we are today in March 2023. When the people of Israel eventually settled in the land flowing with milk and honey, they set up the country of Israel. Solomon built the temple, which was a more permanent home for the Lord to dwell among his people. First came this tabernacle, and it moved about. And then Solomon built the temple, which became the Lord's dwelling place. But during the exile, Solomon's temple was destroyed. Then God sent Ezra and some man called Nehemiah, we know a bit about him, to rebuild the second restored temple. And God promised the glory of the latter would be greater than the glory of the former. And God dwelt in the temple. But then the second temple was destroyed and a third temple was constructed. And this time Herod built a majestic temple for the Jews just before the Lord Jesus walked the earth. And when the Lord Jesus walked into it one day, he said this. He described it as my father's house. And he spoke of how people had turned it into a den of thieves. Of course, the Romans then came and flattened that temple in AD 70. Blood ran in the streets. But of course, the Lord Jesus had came and left the earth at this point, And God no longer dwelt in the temple. So the question that we must ask is, where does God dwell now? We know that God no longer dwells in a stone building. 
But he dwells in the believer's body. He dwells in the believer's body. The New Testament teaches this. He dwells in bodies, human bodies, but not all human bodies. He dwells in every man, woman, boy and girl who has trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal saviour. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and you are to yield your members as instruments of righteousness. Now this tells me this. If the tabernacle, then later on the temple, was to be a holy place and it was to be looked after and it was to be preserved properly, then I ought to look after this body as a child of God, as the Lord dwells in it. I better not defile it with the smoke of a cigarette. I better not put alcohol into it. I better not tattoo all over it. My body, and dear Christian, your body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we better look after it. But not only does God dwell in the believer's body, but he dwells in our gatherings. Now this point is significant. He doesn't only dwell in our bodies, but when we gather together as the local church, he dwells in the midst of those gatherings. So when the opportunity comes, when we gather in a way that we're here, met here this evening, the Lord has promised, and we quote it so often, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. That's important to consider. Where does God dwell today? He dwells in the body of the believer and he dwells in a very special way. When we come together as a local church, he dwells in our midst. Well, then the question must be asked, okay, so that's now, but where will God dwell when this earth is done? We know that one day this earth will be no more, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And here's the wonderful thing. In that day, God's desire won't have changed. He will still want to dwell with people. And in the new heaven and new earth, this will be attained in its fullest sense. Do you remember what John said in Revelation? He said, I saw the new Jerusalem come down out of heaven from God. And the voice said, the tabernacle of God is with men. This tabernacle that John sees coming down in those days, it's the church. It's the bride of Christ. Let me encourage you, dear Christian friend tonight. This day is coming when we will dwell in perfect unity with the Lord. And that should excite you. It should motivate you to keep living for him today. To keep serving him today. Dear Sunday school teacher, stay faithful in teaching the little class and praying for them. Praying that the Lord will save them and use them for his glory. Stay faithful, dear Christian. And when that work colleague tries to undermine your faith, stay faithful to the Lord. You know the end of the story. Stay faithful in your witnessing. Dear parent, stay faithful in bringing up your child and training them in the way they should go. Read God's word with your family. Teach them from it. Pray for your family. Train them to attend the meetings. Encourage them to support the preaching of the gospel. And what a better example than to be at the meeting yourself. Stay faithful. That future day, God will dwell with us and we will be his perfect tabernacle. And then, and what a wonderful experience that'll be because he will dwell with us with unsinning hearts. A tabernacle made up of God's people. So why then, we must ask, if we're so far removed from this Old Testament tent, 
Why would we want to study it? Well, packed into this portable tent that we're going to study, there are so many unbelievable truths that we're going to explore, explore and enjoy together. So let me tell you, just in case you've missed it, what the reason for our redemption is. If you haven't already grasped it, God says here in verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary. And if you underline your Bible, let me encourage you to underline this next line. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God wants to dwell among his people. That's why he's redeemed you. He wants to tabernacle with us. The point in redemption is that God dwells with us and for us to enjoy him forever. Tonight I want to give four reasons why we ought to study this Old Testament tent. And the first of those is this. It's it's a parable, excuse me, I haven't hit those buttons, but I hope you're listening well. The first one is that it's a parable. Turn with me please in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews please in the chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And we're going to read from the verse 8. Hebrews chapter 9, please. The verse 8. A parable. Just two verses. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. Well, as the first tabernacle was yet standing, so that's what we're going to be studying, the first tabernacle. Listen to this next line, which was a figure for the time then present. A parable, you could say, for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Now, that word figure in verse 9 can also be translated as the word parable. You will know well that the Lord Jesus, while he was on earth, uh, would have told simple stories with a heavenly meaning. It was an everyday story that the Lord would have told. There was a story, remember, we thought about it a few Sunday nights ago, of a young man who wanted away from his parents. He went out into the world gambling, drinking, until he ended up feeding off pig's food. And we can draw parables still today with that story because we know of those who've gone out into the world with riotous living, and we can draw parables. And it was an everyday, parallels, we can, it was an everyday story with a heavenly meaning. And when God wanted to show the world his desire to dwell with people, he constructed something that was every day. It was a tent. It was made of materials that we know of, but the tabernacle has heavenly meanings. And we're going to explore those in the incoming weeks. We'll spend some time learning from the tabernacle and we'll discover the heavenly meanings behind each of the instruments there in the tabernacle. So it's a parable. It's a parable, but also it's a shadow. It's a shadow. Uh, The second lesson Uh, Hebrews teaches us about the tabernacle as it acted as a shadow. Look at Hebrews 8, please, with me. And the first five verses. Hebrews chapter 8. And the first five verses. 
We read there, now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve under the example and shadow, there's our word, of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle for, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Now it speaks in verse 5 of how the tabernacle served as an example and a shadow of heavenly things. Now, shadow isn't very exact, is it? If you were to look at my shadow, you wouldn't be able to tell what color my eyes were. Uh, you wouldn't be able to give a detailed description of me at all, would you? There isn't much detail in a shadow, but it's better than nothing. And compared to the real thing, a shadow was very clean and bare, no color, no detail. And this tabernacle was a shadow of the real thing. So we're going to be studying a shadow. Now you might think to yourself, well that's me, I don't want to study a shadow, I want to study the real thing. Well, we're going to draw the comparisons over the weeks to come with the real thing, don't worry. But as we study the shadow, I want you to consider, as there's so many wonderful truths that we will learn about Christ and ourselves as we go through this study, and I want you to consider that as we study this, that we're only scratching the surface. Scratching the surface of who our God is. As we consider the tabernacle. We'll just be getting the bare outline of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And as we study it, well, as I have studied it, I've been in all times. There's times when my jaw has hit the desk. So I consider how amazing our God is. And yet it's just a shadow we're studying. Amazing. It's a parable. It's a shadow. It's a prophecy. A prophecy. Hebrews 9, please. And verse 23 and 24. Hebrews 9, and verse 23 and 24. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, i.e. Christ is no longer acting as that one who went into the holiest of holies. That temple, that tabernacle made with hands, which were figures of the truth. But Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He acts now as our high priest. And what these verses teach me is that the people who constructed the tabernacle, well, they would have had a limited knowledge of who Christ was. And the details of the role that he would perform in the redemption of sin. But the tabernacle actually was that prophecy. It showed the role that Christ would have in a future day. It was a prophecy. And you and I will see the fulfillment of that prophecy as we go through our studies in the tabernacle. The tabernacle acted as a prophecy of that day that Christ would appear before God on our behalf in the presence of the Father in heaven. And he would plead for our sins. It's good to know today that we have a Savior who still prays for us, isn't it? ever intercedes for us. I'm so glad that I have a Savior who prays for me tonight. But the final thing that we'll see is that the tabernacle is a type. It's a type. Now what do I mean by the word type? This is a theological word. 
This simply means a foreshadow, a picture, or something in the future. It's, it's a picture. So really the tabernacle is a picture of what would come in the future. It's a picture that had flaws. There were flaws in the sacrifices of the animals that were made. They could never take away sin. Uh, The high priest could only get into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, which was where God dwelt, once a year. That's where the blood was sprinkled. And if, if the high priest didn't get his approach to this place right, well, he was a dead man. But only one could get in. But that's not how it is today. We've actually sang about it tonight. For the inner curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And the Lord Jesus Christ has opened the new and living way. So what is the tabernacle a type or a picture of? Well, let me tell you firstly, it's a picture of Christ himself. In Hebrews 8 verse 1 and 2 we read now of the things which, have sp- which we have spoken. This is the sum. We have such We have such an high priest who is set in the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, and not man. You remember how John begins his gospel. He writes, the word became flesh and dwelt, and that's that dwelling word which can also be translated as tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled, among us. The tabernacle is a picture of Christ. It, it, it's, so why study the tabernacle, we're asking tonight? Because it teaches us more about our Saviour. But not only is it a picture of Christ, it's actually a picture of you and I as well. It's a picture of us. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verses 5 and 6, we read these words. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant. For a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house. Whose house are we? We are that house being described here. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm until the end. Moses was only a servant to the Lord and to the work of the tabernacle. But the Lord is the owner of this house. And we are now this house or tabernacle. But Christ as a son over his own house. Whose house are we? We are now that tabernacle. And we will see in the ta- we will see how the tabernacle shows us firstly how sinful we are, but it's also a beautiful picture of the plan of salvation. It's a picture of the gospel. Why should we study the tabernacle? Because it shows us how sinful we are and how wonderful the plan of redemption is. But not only is the tabernacle a picture of Christ, and not only is it a picture of us but it's also a picture of heaven. I love this part. In fact, I thought this was one of the greatest truths that I've discovered, one of the most beautiful pictures I've discovered when I look, when it comes to the tabernacle. In Hebrews 9, 24, we read these words, for Christ, we've read this already, for Christ is not entered into holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now listen to these words in Revelation 21. From the first verse of Revelation 21, it says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. 
And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. There's that dwelling language. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God. And he shall be my son. All the former things. Now get this tonight. All the former things of this world will pass away. But there's only one thing that God will take from this old earth before it's destroyed. And it's the tabernacle made up of his people. His redeemed people. We the redeemed in the new heaven and new earth will dwell with God. The tabernacle of God being saved people, redeemed people. The only thing that God will take into the new heaven and new earth. And as we finish, let me tell you something. As you labor for the Lord in the work of the gospel, this new heaven and new earth will serve God as his tabernacle still, no longer bricks and mortar, but living stones. Each person having a role to play. And as you labor for the Lord in the work of the gospel, as a result, you are being a willing channel for God to use. You're working on building this beautiful tabernacle that will be complete and perfect in heaven. And each person that you see saved will add another beautiful living stone to this tabernacle that will be in heaven. But you know, my gracious of God we have. Because we already have a hope that goes into that within the veil. Now what does that mean? We already here on earth as saved individuals can have this boldness to enter into the holiest of holies. Now you think we've said tonight that that high priest was only allowed to approach once a year. And if he got it wrong, if he got it wrong he was a dead man. We are able to enter within the veil and meet God each day at any moment. When you're riding your bike down the road, you can enter into the holiest of holies. When you're at work, you can enter into the holiest of holies. When you're sitting on the sofa, you can enter into the holiest of holies. When you're out on your daily walk, you can enter into the holiest of holies. When you're just sitting on the bus on your way into Balamina, you can enter into the holiest of holies. And we can be in touch with heaven itself. And we should be so God conscious in all that we do. Because God has given us that wonderful access. Through Christ Jesus. God is so gracious and merciful that my spirit. Can enter into heaven itself as I pray. And when we enter into that. It takes our eyes off the world. And it puts our eyes on heaven. I'm looking forward to these studies over the next few weeks. And as we consider the holiness of God, it should cause us to lift our eyes and 
see what Christ has done for us. There's so many pictures that we're going to see. And I'm excited for these studies. But we'll see a gracious God. And I'll tell you, it'll show us how great sinners we are. But a wonderful God that we'll see. Why study the tabernacle? Well, we see that we have a God who wants to dwell with his people. And a God who has sent his precious son, the perfect lamb, who died for us, that we can have that access to the throne of heaven itself. Next time when we come to the tabernacle, we'll take a journey with that Israelite who maybe has a wee lamb under his arms who has sent. And we'll come and we'll visit that altar that was found just through the eastern gate. We'll take a step through the gate into the courtyard and we'll just spend time standing at that altar of sacrifice and think of all that went on there and the picture that it paints of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together before we come to prayer this evening. Our Father, we bow humbly in thy presence tonight, realizing what a gracious and merciful God we have, that you have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who completed the work of redemption there at the cross of Calvary. And we think of that curtain which was torn from top to bottom, that now as your children, we can come boldly before the throne of grace, that we have access at any time of day to that throne where in the Old Testament the high priest could only enter in once a year. Father, we thank you that by our spirit we can touch the throne of heaven itself. We thank you, Father, that even as we gather as a church fellowship this evening, that that is our purpose. For, Father, we come to pray and to touch that throne. And to worship our God. And to come with thanksgiving and praise for that access we have. We thank you, O oh God, that you would want to dwell with us. For, Father, when we consider ourselves, we're so sinful and filthy and weak and let you down every day. And yet, O oh God, you want to dwell with us. We thank you, Father, that because of the work completed at Calvary that we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We thank you, Father, that John was able to say, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And we thank you that Christ was that perfect Lamb. And as we consider these sacrifices in coming weeks that happened there at the tabernacle, Father, how we will see that perfect picture of our sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, tonight as we come to our time of prayer, we come knowing that Christ has made a new and living way, that we can enter into the benefits of all that Christ has accomplished at Calvary. Father, we pray as the disciples pray that prayed that you would teach us to pray. And that, Father, we would come to that throne more often than we do. 
Father, thank you that you're dwelling among us. Thank you that you're in our midst this evening. Father, we pray that we will know that in a very special way, especially after all that we've considered. Thank you that we have a God who seeks to tabernacle with us. Bless us now, O God, as we come to pray. We ask that indeed as we pray that we will know your help. We thank you that we come to the God who hears and answers prayer. Bless us, we pray, and we ask this in our Saviour's name. Amen. Amen.